While you're getting there, let's pray one more time. Quiet our hearts before God. Father, what an awesome opportunity that we are having right now just to open your word. I know I'm guilty, Father, of taking for granted how easily it is to do this. But this is special, Lord. This is, this is eternal stuff we're dealing with tonight, Lord, coming and taking in the word of God and learning to walk with you and being open to correction and growth and fellowship with one another, Lord. This is stuff that is life-giving. And I would ask you, by your grace, to really breathe life into the word tonight. We believe and we declare that your word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and we want it to have its last word in our lives. So again, we're not interested in just going through motions. We really desire to meet with you. And so, Father, would you just right now clear our minds and help us to just zero in on what it is you'd like to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Great to see you guys. What a beautiful day. Amen. Amazing. Well, hopefully you're at um, Exodus chapter 17, and um, it's a short chapter. It's only 16 verses, so how long could a guy talk on 16 verses? Long time. <laughs> it's packed with so much great stuff, but we're going to try to get it all in tonight. Of course, we're just tracking with and um, following the, the story of the Exodus as God has delivered his uh, people out of bondage in Israel, uh, from, excuse me, from Egypt, the nation Israel from Egypt. And now they're delivered, but they're now in the desert. Ultimately, God's desire and plan is to take them through the desert fairly quickly. That was the plan anyway. We'll see that that doesn't turn out. To get them into the promised land, the land that God gave to Abraham 430 years earlier by promise. But he's taking a kind of a roundabout way to do that. And, and instead of going the direct route, he's taking them down into what we call the Sinai Peninsula. And there's all these stops along the way. And we've seen that part of the reason for God doing that is, as we've said, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's a completely different thing to get Egypt out of Israel. God is dealing with them and revealing himself and teaching them things. And so we've been going through all these various lessons and stops. And chapter 16 was this amazing miracle of manna. We looked at that. We took two weeks, actually, to kind of unpack that. And we basically boiled it down to this, that the manna that God provided foreshadowed and pictured for us Jesus Christ and his word. Amen? And so we spent a couple weeks on that. You can get the podcast or CD or whatever if you want to listen to that or just read it yourself. It's great. But now we get to chapter 17, a couple other stops along the way, and I just want to go through the stories fairly quickly and make some applications as we go. So let's just pick it up. Chapter 17, uh, verse 1. I'm going to adjust this fan so it's not blowing my pages all night long. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. 
The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? So we'll pause there for a second just to kind of get the scene. I want you to note there that it says that God moved in verse 1 out of or from the wilderness of sin. By the way, the wilderness of sin is not like a nickname because it's a really bad wilderness or something like that. That's just its name. And it's talking about desert. It's that Sinai Peninsula. Look it up in your map in the back or something later. But it's dry, hot, barren, desert journey. Listen, that God had led them into, but now it says what? God is leading them out of it. And I just want to say this quickly. Desert experiences are a very normal part of the Christian experience. Do you guys understand what I mean by that? It's kind of Christian lingo, so I'll break it down a little bit. But the idea of a desert is a hot, barren, dry place where you don't necessarily see a lot of life. And just like they were physically going through a desert, oftentimes in our Christian journey, it feels like we're in a spiritual desert. And sometimes we feel like we're in that desert because Maybe we've done something wrong, like I'm not hearing God's voice anymore. I used to be, I'd open the Bible and sparks would fly and tears would flow and the heavens would peel back and I'd hear Jesus speak to me directly, you know. It's not happening anymore and, and where's God? And Listen, sometimes sin can be a, a, a reason why we're not hearing the Lord or we feel that way, but it's not always like that. Listen, God led them by a very visual way, a cloud and a pillar of fire, into a wilderness or desert experience. And I just want to say this, three things real quick about desert experiences for us. Number one, they're God-ordained. In other words, God designed it and purposely, if you're in a desert time right now, God has led you there. Well, why in the world would he do that? Because it's in those desert times that he reveals himself in ways that he can reveal himself in no other way at no other time. Does that make sense? Where you have to learn to trust him. Have you ever gone through a time where you're just like, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, but I just don't sense God. Anybody ever felt like that? Me and you. Okay. Guys, it's sometimes during those times where God is teaching us to walk by faith and not by feelings or not by, you know, we just have to trust on the last thing he told us. And Okay, Lord, I don't hear anything, I don't feel anything, but I'm just going to learn to trust you. That's just one example. But the, the point is, is that oftentimes desert, quote-unquote, experiences are God-ordained. They're for our benefit, and here's the best part. They're temporary. <laughs> our whole life, praise God, is not a desert experience. At least I hope it's not. Some are longer than others, but listen, there's going to come a time just like these guys where God led them into the desert, but guess what he's doing now? Leading them out of the desert. So if you're in a desert, so to speak, tonight, have hope. This too shall pass. Amen? It's not going to last forever. But, 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 and this is a big but, so to speak. Don't miss the lessons that God is trying to teach you in that desert time that you're in. Say, Lord, what is it you're wanting me to learn? What is it you're wanting me to get out of this? Instead of just saying, where's the exit? Saying, Lord, teach me. So anyway, he's leading them out of the desert. And notice they camp at a place called Rephidim, and there's no water there. This is starting to sound familiar. It's like a pattern. This has already happened once before. Well, it says there in verse 2, they come to Moses. Now check this out. It says this. They came to Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. What was Moses' reply? 
Why in the world are you quarreling with me? Do you guys catch that? He's like, you're testing the Lord. Now put a little pin in that, that phrase, you're testing the Lord, because that's going to come up later. But Moses, he says, look, why are you quarreling with me? And it says that they just still were thirsty, they're demanding water. And then in verse 4 it says, and so Moses cried out to the Lord. I just want to point out two things in Moses that I really appreciate right here. Number one, they're both leadership things. Number one, Moses was trying to show them, look, why are you crying out to me to give you water? What was he trying to communicate? I do not have the ability to produce water for you. Does that make sense? And guys, it is always a danger. Listen, this is actually a huge lesson of life. It is always a danger to look to a, another person or something or someone to provide for you what only God can provide for you. Did Moses have any way of producing water? No, but they were making that mistake of looking to him, saying, Moses, what are you going to do about this? Moses, we're thirsty. But Moses was wise in this. He's, he's like deflecting, and he's saying, look, we all saw the cloud move us here, guys. This isn't on me. Listen, if you're in any kind of leadership spiritually at all, and that includes parents, any kind of ministry, Sunday school, get this lesson down. Don't let people try to get from you what only God can provide. It's John the Baptist-style ministry. Do you guys remember when they came to John the Baptist? They came to John the Baptist there in John chapter 2, and they said, who are you? And his response was by telling them who he's not. What did he say? I'm not the Christ. That's probably the best ministry lesson anyone could ever learn. You're not the Christ. I'm not Jesus. And so... Don't look to me as if I am Jesus and I can give you everything that you need. That's a very important lesson for pastors to learn, elders to learn, Sunday school teachers to learn, parents to learn, any kind of ministry. Number one, you're not Jesus. Therefore, you don't have to have what everybody needs. Amen? It's okay to not have what people need. But see, the other part of John the Baptist's ministry was this. He said, I'm not the Christ. But what is John famous for? This statement. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He says it over and again. When John died, they said, well, he didn't do very, you know, any great signs, but everything he said about Jesus was true. John's whole ministry was pointing people to Jesus. Amen? Guys, that's how we are effective in ministry. And I'm talking not just about pastoral ministry or counseling or Sunday school. Yes, all of those. But I'm talking about parenting, counseling your friends. Listen, when they come and they're saying, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I, I can't produce what you need. What you need is what Jesus can give you. Let's go to Jesus together and go to him because he's the source. Amen? Great, humongous ministry lesson. When I was pastoring in Oregon, I would gather my leadership guys, especially the pastors, and I would say, guys, look, your job is to be an absolute broken record. When people come, our job is to not solve everybody's problem or have all the answers. Sure, we'll give wisdom. Absolutely, we'll counsel if we know. But the best thing we can do to help people in their walk with Christ is just say, guys, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Amen? I'll tell you guys, so many problems in marriages are because the spouse has got their eyes off of Jesus and onto their spouse in a critical way or onto themselves. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not I, me, 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 I, me, me, I, me, my. 
And so often the answer is get your eyes off of yourself and off of other people and get your eyes back up onto Jesus because he's the only one that can really give you what you're longing for anyway. Amen? Well, Moses says, why are you testing me? Why are you coming to me? I don't have what you need. I've got to hurry this up. And they're like, we're still thirsty. So the second little ministry lesson, look at verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord. That is a great, great strategy, Moses. And it's actually something that Moses is known for. He comes to a situation that's overwhelming. He's the leader, but he doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He drops everything, and it says he cries out to the Lord. He prays. Listen, it is not bad leadership if you don't know what to do. That's okay. Mom, dad, you're not always going to know how to handle the situation with your teenager. You're not always going to know what to do, boss, on the job site. And it's okay. But great leadership is just saying, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to go to God and find out what to do. Amen? Where we mess up is when we don't know what to do and we just scramble and we run to other people, we run to other things, we run to Google, and we look for everything we can do to find the information we need instead of saying, wait a minute, maybe I should first go to God. Amen? I love how it says he cried. Listen, he cried out to God. That's one of the most often used words to describe prayer, and I love it because when it says he cried out to God, that denotes passion and desperation. Do you know why so often our prayers aren't answered? I'm convinced. We lack desperation and passion. I'm not talking about working up some fake emotional passion, but I'm saying praying wholeheartedly. Not praying, but, but you know, in a way that you're, you're praying, but you already kind of know what you're going to do anyway, or if that doesn't work, you've already got a plan B. I'm talking about praying with no plan B, just going to God and saying, if you don't step in, if you don't know, show me what to do, this thing's over with desperation. Amen? And that's how Moses goes on this thing. Guys, I think this might be a word for some parents. I kept thinking about parents this whole week. Because there are times when you are faced with something in your parenting, and your knee-jerk reaction is, like I said earlier, go to Google, go to friends, and go get counsel from other people. And none of those things are necessarily wrong. But could it be that God is saying, why don't you come to me and I'll show you what path to take and how to deal with your rebellious teenager. Do I homeschool? Do I public school? Do I private school? Do I go into outer space and skip school altogether? <laughs> I'm just making that up on the fly. That'd be great. Just get rid of the, every system. But Well, they say this and they say this. They say, That's fine, but what does Jesus say? What is Jesus telling you to do in your situation and you won't know unless you go and you cry out to him. Amen? Great leadership junk stuff by Moses. So he says, don't look at me, look to God. And also he himself goes and looks to God and prays. And so he gets the solution. Verse 5, it says, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock, note that, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, 
and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because of their tested, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Ooh, there's a lot here. Moses goes and cries out to God, what do you want me to do, God? God gives him a direct answer. Moses, I want you to grab your staff. I want you to get a couple of your elders. And I want you to just go in front of the people so they can all see you. And I want you to walk up, up to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, it's the same mountain. So he's probably, they're right there at the base of that, if you see where Rephidim is, where they're camped. So he probably goes up to the base of the mountain. And he says, I want you to take that staff that's in your hand, and I want you to strike, I want you to smite, King James Version, smite the rock. Now the rock, the word rock there, it literally means a huge rocky wall or a cliff. He's not talking about like a, there's a little rock sitting there, you know, something like that. He's talking about there's going to be a, a face or a huge boulder. That's another word that um, defines that, that Hebrew word. And I want you to take that stick, boom, and I want you to smack that rock, and water will come out. And he did so. Moses did exactly what it says. He walks up, grabs a stick, hits the rock, and water came out, and they drank. Now, we don't have a lot of detail here. We do in other places. By the way, I don't know why this is. In my mind's eye, I, I, for the longest time, whenever I thought about this story, I always thought about it like Moses goes up and hits the rock, and so a little of water comes out. Almost like an elementary school water fountain that's half broken. You guys know what I'm talking about? You turn that thing, and you're cranking it, and there's like this little much, and you're like almost have to suck the thing to get water out, but you don't want to suck it because it's so gross and there's germs on there. But you know what I'm talking about? Like, Almost like God saying, oh, you want water? Here's, a, here's some water. Work for it, buddy. I'll give you some water. Suck that. <laughs> Psalm 78 tells us that's exactly not how it happened. It says in Psalm 78, actually, let me give you the reference. Psalm 78, verses 15 and 16. I'll actually read it to you. Um, listen to this. It says, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep he made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow like rivers. Guys, this was no trickle. This was no broken water fountain little trickle coming out. This was an absolute geyser, just, just a massive river of water just coming out of that rock. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It would have to be that much water to, to refresh 2.5 million people or more and their animals, right? Can you picture this? This... I just want to see their faces. Just boom, this water comes out, and you can just almost hear the collective, yes, and they're no doubt jumping in and drinking and taking their, you know, filling up their content and just enjoying it. There's more than enough. It's abundant. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Amen? What, a, what an awesome provision that God made for them. Now, before I get into kind of the, the, the primary application of that, I want you to notice with me, that even though this was a great event, it's kind of marred a little bit. There's almost, you know, there's a, an asterisk by this. Because it's named, um, what is the names for it again? Um, Masa and Meribah, quarreling and testing. Because it was at this spot, they were quarreling with, and that means they were contentious and argumentative and demanding of Moses and of God, and they were testing. Listen, Think about that just for a second. They were testing God. We've already seen a couple of times that God has brought them to these places in the wilderness to test them. 
but in their arrogance, they're testing God. Guys, this is actually a pretty significant moment as far as God is concerned. This little event right here and the renaming of it to quarreling and testing is something that pops up a whole bunch of times later on in the scriptures, usually in the form of a warning. If you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see cross-references to Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, Psalm 95, um, various other places. And it's God saying, don't test me like they did at Meribah. That's interesting to me. In fact, let's actually read from Psalm 95. I can read it if you just want to listen or you can turn there. It's Psalm 95. In verse 7 and following, it says this. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. There's a key phrase, verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. We'll pause there. There's this, this is a stern warning, just, and I just want to pause here because God is saying, don't do what they did. In another place, it says that this provoked God to anger that they tested him. What was the test? They said this, God, are you with us or not? We're, we're going to die of thirst here, so are you with us or not? What did Psalm 95 say? Though they had seen my works. When it says he loathed that generation, it doesn't mean he hated them, but he just hated the fact that they could never trust him. And it wasn't that they couldn't trust him, it's that they wouldn't trust them. Steve, Pastor Steve touched on that this Sunday when he said, unbelief is not the inability to believe, it's a stubbornness to not believe. And the point was, is like, they were saying, God, are you with us or not? Really? Really? A month and a half earlier, God delivered you out of 400 years of slavery in ways that were so dramatic and miraculous with plagues and all the rest. And, and you were brought out of Egypt, and then you were taken through the Red Sea. And then not only that, God gave you, he, he turned bitter water sweet, and he rained down manna from heaven and quail to eat. And he leads you with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he's done all the, and, and you're asking, but are you really with us? And aren't we tempted to say, like, I can't believe those people. Be careful, though. Because, guys, we got to be careful of this, to not harden our hearts. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed at myself sometimes before God. Because at the first sign of trouble in my life, the first hint of something hard, the first sign of a trial, what can be my reaction? <laughs> God, you've forsaken me. Are you with me or not? And I almost think God goes, really? He's much more gracious probably, but guys, it does us well, it does me well to stop and say, wait a minute, before I freak out, I need to remember something. God saved me. I was lost. I was going to hell. And God revealed himself to me. And he gave me grace. And, he, and, he, and he's... 
and, I, and he just blessed me in so many, so many ways. I was going through my devotions, and, and I always have a finger in the, in the Psalms, and I came across Psalm 9, and it says this in verse 2, I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praises to you. Oh, before that, excuse me. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. You know what's really good for us to do sometimes? Recount all the stuff that God has done in your life. Just start going down the catalog. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever done that? I want to encourage you, if you're in a place right now where you're, you're wondering, is God with me or not? Is he going to go? Can I just encourage you to, before you freak and accuse God of forgetting about you, think about all the times he's come through. I think about early on in the ministry and the budget so tight. And I can think of several times coming home to a porch loaded with grocery bags all over my front porch because somebody was on their heart to buy us groceries when we, they had no idea that we didn't have money for groceries. I can remember in three different occasions, God has given me cars. I got in a, an accident. I had a 1978 Dodge van. And I, and, uh, I got... I rear-ended somebody. It was my fault, too. can't believe it. But it's often said that vans are the first to at an auto, uh, uh, first at a crash and, and last to leave. Anyways, um, I crashed my van, and I didn't have any money to buy another car, and I had to go. I was on this. I went to a missions trip right after I wrecked it, and I came back, and in my garage was a car. A bunch of people in our church just pitched in and bought me a car, and on the front seat was $500 cash just because. And I could go on and on and on about stories in my life where God has come through with bills, medical bills, um, financial needs, health needs. And he's just come through and he's come through and he's come through. And not just come through, but gone above and beyond coming through. Amen? Has he not done that in your life? Can you think of a few times where God has come through? So listen, we got to be real careful. Let's not test God. The first sign of trouble, let's not throw our hands in the air and say, it's all over, he's forgotten about us. Because listen, if you can't think of any other example, he gave us Jesus. Amen. So he wasn't happy with the way this turned out. But in his grace, man, he pours out this river. Now listen, there's a lot to this because it's um, just like in chapter 16, there's some beautiful typology here. And think about it, guys. Um, Actually, we don't have to think too hard. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10 or just listen. For time's sake, if you just want to listen, 1 Corinthians 10. And I've read this before because this is that place where Paul is, is teaching us that what happened in the Old Testament oftentimes is illustrative of New Testament principles. And he says in verse 3, he says, And we all, they all ate of the same spiritual food, speaking of manna, and they all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is a huge, huge lesson, you guys. What is Paul declaring? Paul is declaring that there is something greater. There is a beautiful picture being painted by Moses when he goes with the staff to the rock, and he hits the rock, and the water comes out. He's saying, that rock is Jesus. Now, he's not saying that the rock itself was Jesus, but what he's saying is, It's a picture of Jesus. And by the way, little note, it says that the Lord stood on that rock in front of Moses, and then Moses hit the rock and water came out. Listen, this is so beautiful. If the rock 
is typical of Jesus, then the smiting, the hitting of the rock is typical of the crucifixion. In fact, it says in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we have gone astray like sheep and turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Guys, Jesus is that rock that got struck. Amen? Then what's the water? In John chapter 7, and I realize I'm flipping to more scriptures than normal, but it's, it's important at least to, to make mental note. If you make a physical note, that's good too. In John chapter 7, as Jesus was at one of the feasts, he says, it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, or belly, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those whom believed in him were to receive, that's future tense, for as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been crucified. Now, let's pull the string, pull it all together. The rock is a type of Jesus. Smiting the rock speaks of Jesus being crucified. The water that came out is a picture or a type of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will have rivers of living water flowing out from their innermost being. And the idea is you'll be so filled up that it'll flow out. That's the idea. You, know, you yourself will not only be satisfied, but you will have so much life in you, it'll be flowing out of you. But the note there is important in John 7. He says, this he spake of the Holy Spirit. So there's a little theological lesson here. He was speaking in John 7, future tense, saying, this is what's going to happen once I'm glorified. And that's kind of code for crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Jesus said in John 14, um, when I go, I'm summing up. He says, um, the Spirit, I'll send another comforter, another helper. You know him because he's with you, but he shall be what? In you. So the theology is this, is because Jesus has now been crucified and resurrected and glorified what has he done? Acts chapter 2. He sent his Holy Spirit on the church. Amen? And now any person who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life. They are indwelt by, if you would, the water of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yes or no? That's just good theology. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that when we believe, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 1 and 13 and 14 um, says that when we put our faith in Christ after we heard the gospel, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay? So, guys, that's just good theology. But here's the thing every Christian has the Holy Spirit. But I don't believe every Christian has the abundance and the overflow and the fullness of the Spirit in their lives all the time. Does that make sense? 
Dude, that picture of that water gushing out of the rock, that's the imagery Jesus is drawing on and says, when you come to me and you drink of me, you're going to have so much life in you and it's going to be gushing out like a river out of your life. Let me ask you something. In, in all sincerity, does that describe your life? I'm troubled by this sometimes. Because I read about what Jesus said the life would look like, and I look at myself in the mirror, so to speak, and I'm like, I don't know if this is matching up. Again, John says it in John 4, or Jesus says it in John 4, rivers of living water, rivers of living, torrents of living water, life just flowing. Listen, I'm not saying you're not saved, but I am saying this. Not every Christian has that fullness of the Holy Spirit flowing out of them. But I will say this. Every one of us can. Amen? And every one of us should. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, by commandment, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And guys, I think that's one thing that is so lacking so often in our, in our lives is we have the Holy Spirit, but not to be cliche, but the Holy Spirit doesn't have us. And I don't know why that is sometimes. I will say this. If the Bible says be filled with the Holy Spirit, then it is wrong to say, well, I, I'm just not that kind of Christian. Do you understand that? There's an old saying. God's commandments are God's enablements. If God says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that means you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means the normal Christian life should be a person that is filled and overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. A separate encounter with the Holy Spirit than your indwelling or your salvation experience. And I know that touches on theological buttons sometimes. And I'm happy to explore that in a different time. But for tonight, man, is your life flowing? Does it have that river? One more little reference on this, by the way. Just jot it down and I'll sum it up. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God says through Jeremiah, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug them for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God was saying, my people have forsaken the source of living water. In the Middle East, water is everything. And living water speaks of flowing water that has life to it, that's clean and refreshing, as opposed to a pool of stagnant water. And what they used to do is they would dig, and they still, you know, you can still see it today in Israel, they'll, they'll dig out these massive holes in the rock called cisterns, and they were designed to catch runoff water so that you could have reservoirs of, of water when you needed it. And, and that's a great thing. But what God was saying was, I am a fountain of living water, and you have forsaken me to go drink from that stagnant, mosquito-filled water over there in your little cistern that you've carved out. And by the way, they would carve those out originally out of the limestone that's porous and couldn't hold water, so it would leak out. So then they'd plaster it, and they'd do everything to kind of keep it from breaking. But eventually those things just break, and they just don't hold water, and all the while God's saying, come drink of me. Amen? And so often, guys, we're walking around parched and dry spiritually, and all the while the Lord's like, just come to me and drink. Amen. And instead, we're going over there <laughs> sucking from the ponds of the world, 
thinking we're going to find refreshment, and we're not. Because Jesus is the living water. Amen? He wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit, I am convinced, way more than we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know I say this a lot, but I triple dog dare you tonight to get alone with God and say, Lord, fill me with your whole, I am thirsty for you. But maybe if you're honest, you say, I'm not really all that thirsty for you. Could be you're going to the wrong cisterns, the wrong source. Repent of that and just say, Lord, give me a thirst for you and then fill me with you. Amen? Well, all that to say, guys, what a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit. And it's great to have the theology and the topology and all of that, but what really matters is the reality. Do you have that river of living water flowing in and out of your life? If not, ask for it tonight. Amen? All right, quickly, let's pound out the rest of this chapter. Verse uh, 8. Then Amalek came and they fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. He took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And I love verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nisi, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So I read through that fairly quickly, but here's, this is so interesting that the Holy Spirit sought fit to pair these two stories together. Why? They just had this amazing, miraculous provision of water, life. They're stoked. They're refreshed. They're like, woo! And then the next sentence is, and Amalek came and fought with them. Now, Amalek was basically, they were a people group, descendants of Esau, kind of a nomadic tribe there in the Sinai Peninsula. For time's sake, you can jot down Deuteronomy 25. The way that Amalek would attack is they would wait for them. And it says they would cut off the tail. In other words, as the group of the Israelites would go by, they would wait for the weak and the weary and the lagging, and they would pick them off as they were separated from the pack. Interesting. But in this case, there's a full-on battle. They're just attacking them. I can almost see the Israelites going like, wait, what? There's battles in this thing? I thought we were just following this crazy God leading us through the wilderness. Now there's war? What? And so they're getting ready to fight. Moses says, okay, look, you grab the sword, go down in the valley. You fight those guys, hand-to-hand combat. You do that work. I'm going to grab me and him and her, and we're going <laughs> to go to the top of the hill. And again, part of me is just like somebody's like, okay, we're going to go fight in the valley, and you guys are going to go into the top of the hill. That doesn't seem fair or practical. They go up there, and we're told that while Joshua, listen, is fighting in the valley with the sword, Moses and Aaron and Hur are up on the hill, and Moses is what? Lifting his hands. 
And we're told that ever, as long as Moses' hands were lifted up, they would look down in the valley, and Joshua and the army would prevail against the enemy. And I can almost see Moses saying, Whew, okay, things are good. And he put his arms down, like kind of just check out the battle watch. And then as his arms went down, a little time would go by, and then all of a sudden Amalek starts to prevail against the Israelites. Oh, God. And, and Moses puts his hands back up to God, and then the Israelites would prevail. And at some point, they did the math. They're like, Okay, okay. And they kept the hands up. But he got tired, so they propped him up, you know, and they held him up. But the idea is as he, he held it up all day into the evening. And what does it say? Joshua prevailed against the enemy. Guys, this is such a, it's not hard to do the math on this one, by the way, to come out with the, the application. You see, just like the children of Israel surprisingly found out that there's wars in this thing called following God. Isn't that true with us? How many of you guys when you got saved, you're like, wait, what, there's war? <laughs> I'm in a battle? When he told me this part. But that's what's real, guys. When you give your life to Christ, at some point you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a battle. You know why it's a battle? We have an enemy. We're in a battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not a battle for, you know, against physical people or territories or anything like that, physical land. We're in what the Bible calls a spiritual battle, aren't we? And this isn't meant to be a full teaching on spiritual warfare, but the Bible makes it very clear that we are in a full-on conflict with a very real enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right, but against principles or principalities and powers and forces of darkness, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, same kind of thing. We're in a war, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. By the way, always good to remember that. Listen, whenever you find yourself in a battle, if you're fighting against another person, you're fighting the wrong battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. Your wife is not your enemy. Your kids are not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Muslims are not your enemy. You know, President Trump is not your enemy. Uh, Obama's not your enemy. It's, it's a spiritual battle that we're in. It's not a physical battle. Does that make sense? And we're not fighting for land or territories. This is where the Crusaders went very wrong. Do you know, as Christians, we don't really have holy sites. Do you understand that? All due respect to the Notre Dame tragedy and all of that fire. And, and as far as history goes, an architect, that's, that's a tragic thing. But, but as Christians, we don't cling to some physical place on, on earth and say, oh, this is super holy. We can't let anything happen to this. You know why? Because God doesn't dwell in buildings and in land. He dwells in us. Amen? So we're in this battle. We're in this conflict. And it's a real conflict, and it's a conflict that involves Satan, and it involves this world system, and it involves our own old nature, our flesh. Amalek is actually a great picture of the enemy, but spe specifically our old sinful nature. Because why? It's a perpetual battle. God says, I'm going to always be at war with these guys. How many of you guys have found out there's a perpetual battle between your old nature and your new nature? So we can just kind of settle that. They're, they're in a battle. It was kind of a shock to them. Maybe it was a shock to you when you realized, oh, dang, I'm in a battle too. And notice when did it happen? Right after something really good happened. How many of you guys can testify to that? I'm going to start walking with Jesus. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. And so what's the first thing that happens? Conflict. Battles. Because Satan is like, I liked it better when you 
didn't go to church. I liked it better when you didn't pray. Go call yourself a Christian all you want, but don't go to church. Don't go to the prayer meeting. Are you crazy? You're going to church on Wednesday night too? As soon as you take that step forward, as soon as there's some great victory, boom, that's when the enemy comes. Or when you're weak and when you're struggling, boom, that's when the enemy comes. And so they're in this battle, but guys, don't we have in front of us, I mean, this is in this little package right here, I believe, just, just quickly for tonight, because I know that time's running out, but guys, there is such a great little package here on how to really prevail in the battle. It's two things. And let me say this about, about prevailing. You will either prevail in the battle, spiritual battles, or you will be prevailed upon, and there's no middle ground. Do you understand that? You can't take this neutral position like, I'm Switzerland spiritually, okay? I don't want to just, I just don't want to be, I'm just not a conflict kind of person. Tough. You're in it. And you will either dominate or be dominated, and that's just the way it is. And guys, here we have two keys to victory. They're so important, and they're so said a lot if you're in Christian circles, they can lose their impact. So listen with fresh ears. It's the sword and it's the lifting of hands. The sword. We know, of course, that's easy. Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse 17. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. If he, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is, sh- is like a two-edged what? sword. And guys, if you are going to have any kind of grit, any kind of longevity, or any kind of advancement or defense, and any kind of spiritual conflict, you have got to not only know, but use the Word of God in those conflicts. Amen? What did Jesus do? Remember Jesus tempted in the wilderness 40 days by the devil, and he came at Jesus. Hey, you're hungry. Why don't you turn this this rock into a loaf of bread? It is written. The next temptation, what did Jesus say? It is written. It is written. Guys, we've got to employ the word of God in our battles. We've got to unsheath this bad boy, and we can't unsheath it if we don't know it. Amen? For example, quick one, and then we'll move on. Let's say you struggle with, let's, just, let's pick something that no one really actually struggles with, just for hypothetical, um, anxiety. No one actually struggles with, like, worry or anxiety. And I don't make light of that. I'm not trying to make light of that. Because I know some people really struggle with that. And I'm not necessarily talking about full-on, you know, debilitating anxiety or panic attacks. But I'm just talking about garden variety anxiety. And if you just start playing into that and listening to it and going on and worrying about this and what if this doesn't happen with the job and what if this happens and our money is going to do this and... But then the Bible verse comes to your mind, be anxious for everything but job stuff. Is that what it says? It says be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? How do you, how do you fight that temptation to just get sucked into anxiety? You've got to pull the word of God out and say, no, the Bible says, so brain, you're going to start thinking right. I know my, my flesh, I want to go off into left field, but no, we're not doing that. We're going to do this. Amen? That's one example. But the point is, is that the word of God, you speak it, you employ it, you know it, you use it. Amen? But the other thing is the lifting of the hands. The lifting of the hands 
is really a, a picture or a type of prayer, isn't it? It says in Lamentations that we lift our heart with our hands. Isaiah chapter 1, God says, look, you're, you're spreading out your hands, but I'm not listening to your prayers. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, I would have men everywhere pray with holy hands lifted up. So this idea of lifting hands is lifting our heart, lifting our, our, our prayers up to God. And guys, this is the dynamic duo. The Word of God and prayer. But not just any kind of prayer. Listen, this is really on my heart, and I know we're over time, but I'm just going to keep rolling. If you got to go, go. But i got to finish this thought. This is really what's on my heart. Not just prayer, but prevailing prayer. Prayer that dominates. Prayer that is answered. Prayer that prevails in the battle and in the situation. Amen? And i got to be honest with you, there's a lot of times I've, I've taken this, this, this view where it's like, well, prayer is kind of what you do when all else fails. I mean, kind of like this story. I can almost see the guys like, hey, we're getting ready for battle. Where's Moses going? He's going to go pray. I'm ashamed of the fact that for a lot of years in my Christian life, I had a very low view of prayer. And a lot of Christians have a very low view of prayer, thinking that it's just not very pragmatic. I'm more of a can-do kind of guy. Listen, there's always stuff to do. Of course, there's the fight and there's the hand-to-hand combat. But how victorious was that combat without prayer? Prayer is the key. Prayer is more work than you could possibly imagine. People that say that prayer is not really working are people that don't pray. Because prayer is a grind sometimes. And prayer is difficult. Real prayer. Not just firing off thoughts, and, but, but on your face and on your knees and seeking God and quieting your heart and lifting people before the throne of God and asking God to change situations and pleading with God. That takes energy. Lifting your hands. Moses was tired in prayer. But they're saying, no, Moses, you've got to keep praying. We're going to help you lift your hands. Keep praying, Moses. And as he kept praying and he kept seeking God, the battle got to a point where it was push, 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 victory. Amen? What we do so often is we, we start and we have our hands up and we're seeking God in our particular battle, but we give up too soon. And so instead of prevailing, we are prevailed upon. And this is heavy on my heart because I feel like there's some people in here tonight that you are in a battle for your kids, you're in a battle for your marriage, we are in battle for souls, for people that we know, and we must go to the mountain and pray. There's a time for the word and there's a time to share and there's a time to do the practical things. But without prayer, those things have no oomph. God can do more in prayer than any amount of our effort can ever accomplish. I really believe that with all of my heart. We have the Billy Graham or the Will Graham thing coming up. Will Graham tells a story about Pearl Good. You guys have heard this story, right? Back in the late 40s, she went to a, a, a crusade in L.A., a Billy Graham crusade. She was a retired, or not retired, but a widowed, excuse me, nurse. And she went to a Billy Graham crusade, and she saw Billy, and she saw the team, and it says that they were just on her heart. So out of her own pocket, she would 
find out where they're going to be in what city, and she would get on a bus like a Greyhound, and she would drive to those cities, book a hotel in the same city, and pray sometimes all through the night, unbeknownst to anybody on the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association team. And I think we know the results. Evidently, Billy Graham caught wind of that, and they began to pay for her to come and just go pray in the cities. Why were those crusades so effective? Have you ever heard Billy Graham? This is no, no slight on him whatsoever. He was dynamic and, and stuff, but his message was not like, it was just the gospel. He was just giving the gospel. But why was there so much power? Well, A, the Holy Spirit, but I think B, because people were praying. Amen? I think I've told the story. I wanted to show the picture, but I couldn't get it up there. I found it today. In 2015, I went to India to, um, and to Nepal on a, a missions trip, and I was, my wife and I got to go, and we were, um, I was speaking at a couple little pastor things, one in Nepal and a couple in, in India, in Delhi and other places. And the, the ministry I was with called Harvest Missions, they were showing me around and, and I don't know if anybody, if you've ever been to Delhi, it's a trip. There, it's like, there's a zillion people in Delhi. And there's like no more room to build, so they just build up. And you'll see buildings that are not even finished, but there's rebar sticking out the top because they're like, well, if we just need to keep building up, we'll just keep going up. And they're like, we want to show you something. They, should, they take us into this room. We're going up these weird stairs. We go into this room. We kind of step over into this tiny little room, a concrete floor with some blankets on it. There's about 10 ladies in there sitting on the floor. And they're like, this is... Um, these ladies pray for our pastors that are out in the field. We, they had scores and scores of pastors all over India that they were supporting, and they said, these ladies pray eight hours a day, every day, for those pastors. And they handed me a book, and it showed me all the pastors' names, all their kids, all their needs that they have, and all they do all day long is in shifts. They pray pray and, and and the director was like yeah we just started noticing that this battle's real and we needed to pray so these that's what these ladies do every single day and then if that weren't humbling enough they turned to me and said so we'd like you to pray for them really you want me to pray for them i was so humbled what am i going to say to these ladies these are heroes of the faith these are the ones that will be at the front of the line in heaven. And I'm, I'm, I'm camping on this point. I'm so over time. I'm just taking advantage of Steve not being here tonight. You know, the cat's away. The mice do play, right? You can tell on me later, whatever. I'll be clipped next Wednesday. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really passionate about this because I feel like, I feel like, a, on a personal level, there's a lot of battles that we're encountering, and, and I want to encourage you to not give up in prayer. But I also believe God is wanting to do great things on this island and our families. And we got it, we've got to prevail in prayer. We've got to learn to pray, and the best way to learn to pray is just go pray. No one's expecting you to go pray all night necessarily. By the way, there's an all-night prayer meeting this Friday night for the Will Graham Crusade at Aloha Church. But guys, we've got to prevail in prayer. Amen? Don't give up. Don't take a low view of prayer. This is the game changer. This is where lives are changed. The battle's real. It's coming to us. We, but here's the thing. We 
can prevail. Not in our strength, not in our ability, not, not in like if we have really specially worded prayers, but just getting before God and praying and seeking Him and crying out to God and then doing the battle however we need to in, in the valley. I've often wondered what it would look like if at church, during the services, we had a team somewhere in the church praying. We used to do that at my old church just for a little while. I mentioned to our leadership team, I said, guys, second service is killing me. There's so many distractions. I feel like I'm talking into midair. I don't know what it is. There's some spiritual battle, something going on. And a few guys took it upon themselves. We had a prayer room that was actually behind the stage. And they would gather and pray while I'm preaching. And I, t- I can tell you from experience, it was a dynamic difference in our church. And church history is full of churches that would do that. Charles Spurgeon's church, and every, where people just pray. While the sword is being wielded, prayer is going up, and victory is being won. Amen? Thanks for indulging me and staying 15 more minutes. Let's stand together now. 16 verses. I can't get through 16 verses. Let's pray. Somebody needed to hear this word tonight about prevailing in prayer. And I, I feel like it's, it's a family issue. And I really just believe the Spirit is telling you, don't give up in prayer. Go to your prayer closet. Get on your face before God. Keep lifting that person before the throne of heaven. Okay? Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we just say, First of all, thank you, Jesus, that you are our rock and that you let them smite you and that you, Lord, have given us your Holy Spirit. And we want to be filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We don't want some drinking fountain trickle. Lord, we want the river. And I pray, God, that you would just fill us and overflow us. Lord, come upon us, that life would flow out of us to others. Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Lord, that you would help us in the spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in to use the word of God, to know the word of God, to prevail in prayer, to keep praying. Lord, I lift up those that are in battle for their marriages, for their kids, for lost loved ones. Lord, we, we together, we lift our hands to you and say, Lord, help, Lord, save, Lord, do something. Step in. Intercede, Lord. Father, for the Will Graham celebration, for the, the, the evangelistic endeavor, Lord, help us. If you don't do this, it's just a bunch of us spinning our wheels trying to put something together and organize some event. We need your help, Lord. God, we're praying for lost souls to be drawn in and drawn to you and saved, Lord. Have your way. Lord, we pray for this island. We pray for revival. We pray for one another. We just say, Lord, hear our prayers and teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, thanks for for sticking around longer. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.